Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark. Uh, it's been wonderful this semester to be studying through the book of Mark together. And this morning we'll come to Mark chapter 11. And uh, as we begin to look at this passage together, I uh, just want to say, um, just express my gratitude for the opportunity to be at Southeastern. Uh, I came here in 1998. I was 27 years old, had one little bitty baby, and uh, now my kids have grown up here. This is where they learn to ride bikes and skateboards and uh, where they fell and skin up their knees and met so many wonderful, wonderful people. And Southeastern has been a community that uh, certainly has shaped me more than I've had any contribution in shaping the community here, the literally thousands of students that I've had the the privilege of uh, leading in classrooms uh, have have been such a blessing, and they've gone on to demonstrate why it is that Southeastern is such a rich, rich community. Uh, You you know, if if there's anybody who can speak to what Southeastern uh, has been over the last almost 25 years, uh, it, it would be me and my colleagues who have observed all that God has done here. And Southeastern is one of these rich communities where the gospel is real and genuine, where uh, there's an authentic Christian living, where there's a focus on the very mission that we're going to be talking about today in the book of Mark. And that, that mission has never wavered. It's never changed. We've never taken our eyes off of the goal. We've never turned our focus to anything else. Uh, whatever it is that, that anyone might hear or think or consider in any other circles, uh, everyone who knows, knows that Southeastern is a community where Jesus is Lord, where his mission is first and foremost in our minds and in our hearts. And Southeastern is a community where you can come to be shaped and formed as a, as a young man, as a young woman who's growing in Christ and being equipped for the work of the ministry and the church here and literally around the world. So many times in chapel services, we've we prayed for students and their families. We prayed for colleagues and their families, and we've watched God over and over again bring healing to the hearts of men and women in this chapel and through the people who have sat right where you sit right now. And so as God sends you out into his mission field, uh, he does so with great promise. And that promise is this, that he is with you. <laughs> And he will be with you until the end finally arrives. And it's great and wonderful hope that you and I have. And to be uh, speaking this morning in the aftermath of Easter, where we celebrated together the resurrection of Jesus as the people of God, focusing our attention not only on what he has done, but our own participation in that. What a blessing it is to point our attention to Mark chapter 11 this morning. And so we'll begin reading in verse 20 and go down through verse uh, 26 this morning. So hear now what is the word of God. And now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Teacher, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered away. And so Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain... Be moved and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. 
And therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you'll receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive that person, that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And when I saw that this was the passage that uh, I would be teaching on today, I thought, what did I do wrong? Uh, who, who doesn't like me that I would be sharing two of the most difficult statements in the New Testament that Jesus makes? You know, Jesus regularly kind of talks in parables and enigmas. And what's fascinating about Jesus is so often when someone says something to him or asks him a question, he diverts uh, to what he wants to talk about. And in other words, the one who really is in charge of the conversation is always Jesus. And he has something to say that, that regularly seems out of place, uh, like the the two uh, statements that he makes here. Uh, Oftentimes, people have taken these passages uh, out of their context, and uh, they have applied this kind of name it and claim it idea that uh, Jesus said, whatever I ask for, I'm going to get. And the focus becomes on asking for the things that I want and this believing that God is going to get them. And if I just have enough faith, then I can name it and I can claim it. If I'll believe it, then I will receive it. In the world that we've lived in the last 10 years, we've been in hospitals a lot with people who were dying and people who were watching their loved ones die and that were struggling with all sorts of challenges and difficulties that were life and death. And several times, many times, more than I ever want to count, there were people who would turn to a passage like this and would try to apply name it and claim it type of theology to the context where they were, the situation and circumstance where they had found themselves. Unfortunately, it oftentimes led to great disappointment when what they were claiming was not what they gained and what they were asking for was not what they had received. And the, the weight of, of that failure as they saw it of their faith became so heavy for so many of them. And uh, that, that as, a, as, as a pastor uh, who would uh, teach someone that if you just believe strongly enough, you will have whatever you want, you're heaping coals on people who are, who are in your church, because that's not what Jesus is talking about. And so, what is it that he's saying? What is it that Jesus is really pointing us to when he tells us about casting a mountain into a sea and forgiving others in order that we might would be forgiven? Well, it's important to note where this passage falls in the book of Mark. Now, Mark has 16 chapters, and the first 10 chapters cover 33 years of his life. So that's a lot of of time in Jesus' life to cover for 10 chapters. And then the last six chapters cover just a week, just one week in his life. The last week of Jesus' life is what is most significant. Everything that he has done up to that point is leading toward what we see unfolding in Mark chapter 11. Uh, Palm Sunday, two weeks ago, you perhaps even read from the beginning of Mark 11, where Jesus has this triumphant entry, where he comes into Jerusalem, uh, fulfilling Zechariah's promise that he would ride in on a donkey and not on a horse. You know, most kings, when they come in to provide a victory and to overcome their enemies, they celebrate that victory on horses, but not not our Lord. He's a different kind of king, and so he comes in on a donkey, humbled, as it were, and the people celebrate him. They're like, this is our king, and they rejoice in the coming of their king. But just as soon as they 
end their celebration, having thrown their coats and thrown their palm branches onto the ground, and Jesus passes by them, they turn their attention away from Jesus, and they immediately leave. And the the story changes abruptly from Jesus being celebrated to the people who celebrated him forgetting about Jesus and only a few days later calling for his death. Irony of all ironies, that they would celebrate him as their king and then desire only a few days later that he would would die. But as the story unfolds in in Mark 11, Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He comes into Jerusalem, and then he he leaves again. It's like the Jesus hokey pokey. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's out of Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. You shake Jesus around a little, and then he comes back out again. And so he goes into Jerusalem. He comes out of Jerusalem, back to Bethany again. And then the next day, he goes back into Jerusalem. And what in, in chapter 11, verse 20, this fig tree that Peter is referring to is actually a story earlier in 11 where Jesus is hungry. You know, he's true humanity. Jesus is not some ghost. He's not some phantasm. He's not some divine figure who is over there that is above all of uh, the, the difficulties that you and I face or the impulses that you and I have. And so Jesus gets hungry, and he walks over to a fig tree in order to eat. And when he gets there, there are no fig newtons for him to have. And so he curses the tree. And so he goes over, and it's, I need you to feed me, and the, and the tree is unable to do that. And so he curses the tree. And this is what Peter refers to as the tree that now has withered up from its root. And he points Jesus back to that. Well, right after cursing the fig tree, Jesus then goes to church. He goes into the temple. And when he goes into the temple, there's a, a fascinating episode that goes on here. He walks into the temple, and he sees that the leaders in the temple have misguided the people. And he says to them that you have turned this temple, this mountain, and the top of that mountain into a den of thieves. This is a place where they have come to steal from you, not to give to you. And he says, but the plan all along is that the temple would be a place, a house of prayer for all nations. And it's this context that provides for us the key to understanding what Jesus says in the verses that we've just read here from verses 22 to 26. Understanding that when he walks into uh, Mount, the, the temple on top of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, he is going to not just cleanse the temple of those who are uh, deceiving the people who are there, but he's going to transform this temple. He's going to turn it into something else. In fact, the, the, the real backdrop to Mark 11 is the Minor Prophets. And there's one section in the Minor Prophets that we call the book of Micah. And in Micah chapter 7, we find Micah unfolding in the exact same order what is unfolding here in Mark 11. Because it starts with, in, in Micah 7, and you can write it down and look there at some point later, but in Micah 7, he starts by saying that, woe is me, I have gone out into the field and I have not been able to find any grapes nor any figs. There's no fig for me to eat. And he follows up this, there not being any grapes, not being any fruit on this tree, not being any fig that he could, could devour, that he could eat by saying, well, God has forsaken me. God has turned his back on me. And it's this picture of what Israel has done, the, the wickedness and the evil of Israel, which is exhibited by her idolatry. 
for claiming to belong to God, but really honoring and worshiping and giving allegiance to some other God, giving themselves over to their own desires and their own wishes as opposed to the desires of God, as it were, living for their own kingdom than for God's kingdom. And as Micah 7 goes on, you get down to about verse 19, and you find the statement that your sins, this mountain, your sins will be cast into the sea, and your sins will be forgiven of you. The same themes, the same ideas, the same words. See, the Bible is intelligently designed. And so while, while Peter and the other disciples of Jesus may be focused on the tree that's in front of them, Mark turns our attention to a different tree, a different fruitless fig tree, the one from Micah chapter 7, the one where the people of Israel have turned their backs on their king. Now, you want to think irony of all irony. The good news is that Israel rejected her king because God had told Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing to all nations. And the way in which they became that blessing to all nations was by rejecting their king when he rode in on this donkey so that he would go to the cross and die, not simply for their sins, but as the minor prophets remind us, the sins of the whole world, the sins of all nations. God's concern is not for a nation, but that he would make one nation from all nations. And in this passage here, Jesus is uh, experiencing in his own efforts and his own work the fulfillment of what Micah 7 has promised to us, what the, what the, the prophets of old have pointed our attention to, and that is the mountain being cast into the sea. Psalm 46, 2, for example, where Israel is that mountain which is thrown over into the sea, judgment which comes. But this judgment is not for destruction. It's for salvation. You know, I love in John chapter 3 and in chapter 4 where Jesus is talking about uh, the, the gift of life that God is offering to those who are born a second time, this time from above and not from below like the first time. And he reminds us that God sends his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So what do we make of judgment? What do we make of mountains being cast into seas? And what do we make of the type of judgment uh, that is the cursing of a fruitless fig tree that is here? Well, we might be tempted to think that what God is striving to do is to punish those people who are his enemies. But God did not send his son to destroy his enemies, but to redeem them, to make his enemies his friends, to come and by participating in judgment himself to bring about salvation for the nations. And so Jesus curses the fig tree, and Peter here reminds him, look, there's the tree that you cursed, as though Jesus had forgotten. I mean, he had done a lot of things in the preceding verses, so maybe he had forgotten about the tree that he had cursed. But it's Jesus' response to this message about the cursing of the fig tree that is so important and that we don't want to miss. Look at how he says, how he responds. He answers to this, uh, this pointing out that the fruit tree that wasn't producing fruit had been cursed by saying, trust in God. Have faith in him. 
believe in God. Don't, don't trust in a tree. Don't trust in this fruit. The, the same message from Micah 7, where God has not forsaken us. Instead, believe in him. Praise and bless our God, this God who promises to become our strong tower. And so Jesus turns our attention, and Mark focuses our minds on the reality that what God is offering to us is a chance to trust his work. You see, to believe in Jesus, to believe in God, as he says here, to have faith in him, is not just to have faith that he's there, that he exists, that he's real, but is to entrust ourselves to him. And Jesus follows up by saying, I assuredly say to you that whoever it is that says to this mountain, be removed in the cast and be cast into the sea, that will happen. Now, for some, the name it and claim it crowd, they would say that what Jesus says is whoever says to a mountain, be cast into the sea, that that mountain will obey him, that that will happen. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, whoever it is that speaks to this particular mountain, the mountain that they're on right now, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the temple. Now, who is it that speaks to that temple and says, be cast into the sea? Well, Isaiah, Micah tells us who it is. It's God who says this. Trust the one who says to this mountain, go be cast into the sea, and the mountain obeys. You see, so often we, we read in the book of Mark about the winds and the seas obeying. But in this passage, it's the mountain that obeys. You see, it is God, God who has become incarnate. It is Jesus who is the one who says to this mountain, be removed. It's not you, and it's not me. I've never even been to Jerusalem, much less said to that mountain, go be cast into the sea. It's the one from Micah 7, the Lord, Yahweh himself, our God, who says to this mountain, be cast over into the sea. He gives judgment to this particular mountain, replacing the mountain that is there with the new mountain. And he casts it into the sea. I love this. The water is where this mountain goes. By casting this mountain over into the water, life can emerge from that water, just like in Genesis chapter 1, life emerges, creation emerges from the water. The, the promised land comes up from the water that is there, the dry land where we can live, and the Garden of Eden, this very first holy city, emerges from the water. In the same way that Noah and his family emerged from the water, giving life once again, and you and I emerge from the waters of baptism to live new life. You see, what's happening right here is this mountain is being plunged underneath the water. This is a baptism that's happening of this mountain as it's cast over into the seas that it might emerge from them, which is precisely what Jesus does. You see, when Jesus talks about the temple being destroyed, this particular mountain, this particular temple, when he talks about it being destroyed, so many of his disciples and others who hear him misunderstand, and they think he's talking about the, the bunch of bricks that are there or the, the mound of rocks. But the Bible tells us over and over that he is the temple. You see, Jesus is the temple who is cast into the water, who is cast into the seas. He is the one who is plunged underneath this water, just like Jonah, another of the minor prophets, is cast into the water only to emerge 
For what end? For what end does the prophet emerge from the water in Jonah to go to the the nations and to preach what message? The forgiveness of sins. And so the, the mountain is cast over into the water, not so that it might be destroyed, but that it might be renewed, that it might be redeemed, that it might be the means to the salvation of all nations. And so Jesus' announcement in verse 7 that this temple is to be a house of prayer for all nations comes to its fruition through Jesus being the mountain cast into the water. And when he's cast into the water, as Isaiah 53 tells us, he does so bearing our sins. You see, the sins of us all have been placed on Jesus. He did not just come to die so that you and I might learn from his death. He came to die so that you and I might participate in his death. He takes our humanity onto himself, the same humanity that gets hungry and would love to eat the grapes, would love to eat the fruit, would love to eat the figs. He takes on the same humanity which is capable of bearing our sins onto himself. And this humanity which bears our condemnation onto himself, the humanity that bears our judgment onto himself, and he casts it into the sea as our substitute. And so he says, pray differently now. Pray differently. This this is not a, a message that Jesus is giving about changing what you pray for, what you ask for, but what you long for. Have faith in God. Trust in him. That he is the one who has cast this sea into the, into the water. And as a result of that, the, the, the deity of Christ is demonstrated and the humanity of Christ is demonstrated. So trust in him and pray consistent with that reality. Pray consistent with what he has done for us. Focus our attention not simply on what we would want, but if we're believing, if we're trusting in him, it's what he would want. You see, we not only pray because of Christ, but we pray with Christ, and we pray in Christ, and we pray through Christ. It's why in Romans chapter 6, when he tells us that if we have been baptized into Christ, we have been baptized into his death, and having been baptized into his death, we also share in his resurrection, that in chapter 8 he can say, and when you don't have the words to pray, the Spirit intercedes for you. You see, as we share in this being cast into the waters through faith in Jesus, ourselves being baptized into his death, Not only are our sins forgiven, but now we have entrance into the temple. Not just a temple, not a building. We don't just go to any old mountain. We go to the mountain. And so the passage here is not about moving mountains, but it's about moving mountains. It's not about taking a mountain and moving it because Jesus has already done that. It's about moving from one mountain to another. It's being transformed from being a part of one temple to another temple. It's about not being on Mount Sinai, but being on Mount Zion. It's not about the fleshly and the worldly and earthly Jerusalem, but it's about the heavenly, the spiritual Jerusalem. And this is the work that God has done in Christ for you and for me. And so it changes the way that we pray, he says at the end. Now we can pray with great confidence 
that if our lives and our prayers are conformed to what God has done, to the will of God, to his kingdom, to his work, then all of those things we receive. What a promise from him that God did not do this work for himself. He did this work for you. And it may sound good and it may sound high and it may sound holy for us to say that Jesus did everything that he did for the glory of God. But you know what the glory of God is? The redemption of all nations. Men and women and young people from all nations receiving this work that he has done. And so if you will have faith in God, you will receive this work, which is the forgiveness of sins and which is your being conformed to his life. You know where this comes to its final fruition, though, is actually Acts chapter 10. And so you can just mark down to look there later. But in Acts chapter 10, we have the story of Cornelius. You might remember this story. Cornelius was a Gentile. He was of the nations, as it were. And uh, the other figure in the story is Peter. And so they both have an angel come to them and give them some instruction. And we're told at the beginning of Acts chapter 10, and it's fascinating, that Cornelius is described to us as one who had faith in God. (laughs) He's this guy. He does exactly what we're told here we're supposed to do. Have faith in God. Trust in him. And so it says that he trusted in God even though he was not one of the Jewish people. He was one of the Gentiles. He was one of the nations. But in a dream, an angel comes to him and says, send your men down to, get this, Joppa, the same place where Jonah went, and send them down to Joppa. Just like the book of Jonah says that Jonah went down to Joppa. And when they get there, they find Peter. Well, Peter has had his own encounter with the angel. And this is where Peter finds out he can eat bacon. It's like the greatest day of his life, right? So the, the angel comes to him and says, here, you know, let me tempt you to eat some bacon. He's like, whoa, I can't do that. Why? Because he's still on Mount Sinai, as it were, in his own thinking, in his own mind. And then he's told, no, 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 move mountains. Move from one mountain to another. You can partake of this. And and it's not a message about now you can eat bacon. It is a message about you need to understand who it is that is clean and what it is that God has done to come and to make the nations clean. And what ends up happening in the story at the end of 10 and into chapter 11 is that the Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles, so-called Gentile Pentecost. The Jews are like, what? This is amazing. But the same Peter who pointed out the curse on this tree is the one who recognizes the removal of that curse and the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus is the temple that is the house of prayer for all nations. And it's a remarkable occurrence in Acts chapters 10 and 11 where this passage comes to its final fruition. And so what do we, what do we learn today? What is it this passage says to us? It says to us first that Jesus takes the curse of the fruitless fig tree. In the same way that Adam stands before a tree in that first holy city, and he partakes of its fruit, bringing about the curse, Jesus curses the tree and then bears that curse on himself. The fruitless fig tree, the the tree that is meant to produce fruit but doesn't, the fig tree that withers, that is cast away into outer darkness, 
Jesus takes that on for us, for all nations, for you. He has taken on the curse of your sins, and he has taken on your sins. It's the reason why Micah says in verse 19 of chapter 7 that it is your sins that become cast into the sea. You see, Micah has has taken all of this rich tradition of uh, judgment being casting the city or the mountain or the nation into the sea, and he has said what Jesus came to do was not to destroy you, but to redeem you by taking your sins to the bottom of the ocean. And Just like Jonah, he has gone to Joppa and into the bottom of the sea for you. And he emerges from that watery tomb as we just celebrated at Easter, and he does this that you and I might know forgiveness, that our sins are removed once and for all. There is no curse, there is no judgment, and there is no sin that you and I must fear. It's all removed. It is all gone, and you didn't have anything to do with it. God has done that for you. And so the message remains today The same as it was when Peter heard Jesus say it in Mark chapter 11. Have faith in God. Have faith in Jesus Christ who is God having become humanity for you. And go into the water with him. Be be the one who by trusting in him goes into the watery grave that the old self might die. That as Romans 6 tells us, you might die to sin and no longer be slaves to it. You see, the, the children of Israel at this point had no conception that what they were doing was bringing about the fulfillment of this great promise that God has made, had made, that he would bring salvation not just to Israel, but through Israel to the nations. And that he would do so by taking on the judgment that they deserved. The judgment that the psalmist regularly and the prophets regularly say, you are deserving of this. And driving home that point that he would take that judgment onto himself so that it might be done away with. That he would take your sins on to himself so that you might pray as he tells us to pray in verses 25 and 26. As those who are forgiven that we might forgive. You see, having received this forgiveness of our sins, we now become men and women who are forgiving people. It's easy in our world to become offended when someone harms us and and to hold on to that offense and to believe that somehow we have the right, the justification to hold on to this offense. But when we go into our prayer closet, we go to the one who was cast down into the sea bearing the curse of our fruitless fig tree so that we might be forgiven. How can we not forgive? How can we for a moment believe that we have the right to harbor an offense against another when our good and kind and gracious God never harbors an offense against him? And so this morning... You and I are the recipients of this forgiveness. Jesus has borne your curse, and he's borne your judgment, and he has borne your sins. 
so that you might be freed from them all. So live as men and women who aren't trying to move mountains, but as those who have been moved from one mountain to another and enter into this house of prayer for all nations that you might enjoy it, that you might announce it to others. And that's, that's the, the one song that we have to sing. This song of redemption that we have received that we then proclaim to the nations that they too might know our God. Have faith in him and proclaim him to all nations. Let's pray together. Our Father, this morning, as we look at this passage of Scripture, uh, we, we honestly uh, just have almost no words for what you have done for us. That you have taken on our curse and taken on our judgment and taken on our sins uh, in Jesus Christ, that we might be uh, freed from judgment, freed from the curse, and freed from our sins. Help us to live as those who are no longer slaves to sin. And to remember, as Romans tells us, that there is no more any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we announce and proclaim this message to others, we pray that they too might find uh, hope and help in times of trouble. And they might as well be translated from the darkness into the light, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun, that they too might move from one mountain to another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.